Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Tuesday, November the 15th, 2022. It is currently 9.45 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where obviously I don't know how to tell time. Obviously, I am on the air at the wrong time. No, not because it's 9.45 p.m. and and I should be on the air at noon or one, because obviously we don't have a set time. So sometimes I'm on the air early, sometimes late, sometimes in the middle of the day. We don't have a set schedule, so I just go live whenever. So that doesn't make it the wrong time. What makes it the wrong time is, well, I'm returning to our series, Five Morning Psalms. Five Morning Psalms, and I'm talking about them at 9.46 p.m. Central Time, which is evening time. So so I should probably wait till like, I don't know, 1 a.m. and then turn on the microphone and go, we're going to continue our series on five morning psalms. It would probably make more sense. I know, obviously, you don't really care what time it is, but I always like to give the date and the time. It just just adds kind of a, a, a time stamp there so people know the context and, and for what they are listening to. But yes, we are returning to our series on five morning psalms. And the reason we're referring to these as five morning psalms is because of an article that was published at ibelieve.com. ibelieve.com. And the name of the article, the headline was, Five Psalms to Read in the Morning to Help Start Your Day with God or let me read it, read this again. Five Psalms to read in the morning to help start your day with God's peace and strength. Five Psalms. And we started looking at these Psalms. Now, here is the reason we're looking at these Psalms, and I need you to listen to me carefully. I cannot speak for you, but I will say this dogmatically for me. Like, this is a non-negotiable. I get very bothered. I get very upset by the church, by pastors, Christian podcasts, Christian radio, Christian books. I don't care where this is coming from. I don't care if it's print, audio, video, church, in-person, online streaming. I don't care how the message is given, but I get very, 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 very bothered, and I dogmatically stand against Christians, offering up promises that clearly aren't for us and clearly don't apply to us because everything around us clearly demonstrates that that promise isn't for us because it isn't happening. But yet, time and time again, Christians stand in the pulpit, pastors stand in the pulpit, and they they just they, they throw out some scripture and basically say, that promise is for you, that promise is for you, that promise is for you. And then people claim that promise. They either have to begin to live in some self-delusion that the promise is coming true, or, or they get hit in the face one day going, wait a minute, I've been claiming this promise, acting like this promise is happening. Clearly, this is not happening. And then in many cases, their entire faith crumbles because they, they start thinking maybe Christianity isn't true. In many cases, it's not the flaw of the truth of Christianity. It's not the problem that Christianity is not true. The problem is someone opened a Bible, saw a promise, and said, this is for you, 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 you. And you're like, okay, I I can do this. And then, or I can have this. And then it doesn't work that way. You know, you know, obviously one example that absolutely drives me crazy is the entire charismatic world telling people that healing, physical healing in our lifetime is guaranteed because by his stripes, we are healed. They don't, they don't take that promise and say, yes, ultimately we will be healed when we have a new body and there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more death and no more tears. But no, no, no. They take it like you're in your life right now. You can be healed while those people in those churches get sick, have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, die of heart attacks. They need glasses. They need hearing aids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and all around them is proof that that promise is not for us now, but they continue to claim it and continue to live in a complete delusional state. And it just, it makes me so mad. And there's countless other examples 
Hey, God, God, God will heal you. You don't even need medicine. So if your child is sick, you just pray to God to heal them. You don't even take them to the hospital. How many times have we seen children die of treatable diseases because of some crazy interpretation in certain parts of, I believe, North Carolina, maybe in parts of Tennessee? I don't know how many people are still doing it, but there used to be a time they would pull out a rattlesnake during a church service because the Bible promises we can be bit by serpents and we will be healed. Crazy stuff. And I could just, I mean, I'm using extreme examples, but they're all over the place where where people tend to, this is one that bothers me to no end, where pastors stand, now that you are a Christian, you have the power to obey God and say no to sin. All right, let's take that to the logical conclusion. Then we should be able to be sinless. Well, no, 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 no. You're going to continue to sin. Well, wait a minute. If I have the power now of God inside of me so that I can say no to sin and yes to God, then you have to say that not only is sinless perfection possible, it is probable. So can I say no to all? Well, you can't say no to all sin. Well, then what? how much sin can I say no to? They, they have no explanation. They just throw out some promise and in many cases have to backtrack to explain why it doesn't happen. And so I just, I've just seen this over and over and over and over and over and over in so many different ways. I, can, I could spend an hour giving examples. It should bother you. Now, these five Psalms, the reason I'm talking about this in, relation to, in relationship to these five Psalms is because there's things in these Psalms that I think seems to make promises And you have to ask yourself, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that a literal promise or a spiritual promise? Is that a promise for you, for me, for now? What, how do I understand these promises? Because if you take these promises in a very literal way for everyone, well, then you've got to explain how all the reality around us goes against that, that, that from being the truth. And we've talked about them. Let me go through the Psalms that we, we, we looked at Psalm 121. The only one we've looked at so far is Psalm 121. We spent two parts. We may come back to Psalm 121. Then we looked at, uh, we haven't looked at yet, but Psalm 103. And then Psalm 91. Psalm 91. And uh, man, Psalm 91, it, Psalm 91 has been in, in the news. Psalm 91 has been a source of much controversy and debate throughout church history. Now, I, I could just go ahead and read this right now, but I, I'm not going to. I mean, we've already looked at it once in this series. We've already looked at it once as, as far as just in a general way. But Psalm 91 has those words my, uh, that uh, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. God is my refuge. God is my fortress. He's who I trust. And I've told you countless times where there was a back when, I mean, it, it comes in waves, but at different times, it becomes a big deal about churches having armed guards and people in the church carrying a gun, and they're going to have security guards because if someone breaks into our church for a mass shooting, we can pull out our gun and take them down, right? And so there's there's been the it was a photograph taking in, in some kind of a I won't say a mega church but one of those kind of medium sized churches. There's people there that the, the 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 photograph is taken from the back of the church. Many of you've heard me exp- describe this countless times. Here's the people standing in the congregation in the pews with their hands lifted up and up on the big screen right where you can read the words. The words are God is my rock, my refuge, my f- my. Uh, my fortress, my shield, right? He is my protector. So they're sitting there praising God as being their, their, their rock, their fortress, their refuge, their shield, their protector. All of these great things, their hands are raised. And guess what the camera zooms in on? All these people wearing guns on their hips. Armed people in the church. Because if someone breaks into that church, they're not going to rely on God, their rock, their refuge, their shield, their protector. They're going to put a couple of bullets in whoever's trying to attack and kill. Now, you can see why someone would like, wait a minute, is that, so is God really your rock, your refuge, your protector or shield? Will he really protect you? Or you just, is that just some theoretical concept? And so that those kinds of questions come into play when you read some of these Psalms, because Psalm 91, a lot of times people look, God is our protector. He's going to protect us. Um, 
If we look at Psalm 91, I, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna, gonna look through it really quick. Psalm 91. Psalm 91. I mean, this it's just Psalm 91 has been a source of so much just uh, frustration for me over the uh, over the uh, over the last few years. Uh, but in Psalm chapter 91, um, let's see here. Do we want to read? Yeah, here we go. Psalm chapter 91, verse 10. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Psalm 91, 10. No plague shall come near your dwelling. You know how many Christians quoted that during COVID? During COVID? Hey, oh, we 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 have full immunity. We don't we don't need anything. We don't need a vaccine. We are protected by Psalm 9110. That's my vaccine. I don't need the COVID vaccine. I've got it. And well, people get sick, people die. And if you take that to its logical conclusion, then you don't need life insurance, you don't need medical insurance, you don't need anything because you nothing's ever going to hurt you. And that's and sometimes Christians will act that way, and other times we're loading guns and making sure we've got a, a security team armed to the you know armed and ready to go so that we can stop the threat. So is God really our protector? Will God really keep the, the bad away from us? How do we understand these promises? Well, what we, there's so much we could say, but uh, what, what time was it? Was it? It was early this morning. I can't remember. I got a notification on my iPad that renewing your mind. Well, they had done an episode on Psalm 91 and Psalm 93. So I thought we would start reviewing that audio this evening. We probably won't get far, but we'll see. So I just. Christians just have to think when we tell everyone, this is a promise for you. And then either we contradict ourselves or everything around us just shows something is wrong with our interpretation. But man, Christians get so defensive when you try to point this out. They they get, I, I just don't understand it. I, I've always been the one going, wait a minute, if that's the promise, then what about this, 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 and 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 this, oh, oh, you're just being too critical. No, if it's a promise, then this is the way it should work, right? And then nobody ever has any good answers. But let's see how Renewing Your Mind handled Psalm 91, and we will begin listening to that right now. When Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, Satan quotes Psalm 91. Jesus could have said, you're misinterpreting that psalm. I know what it means. I wrote it. And uh, you're not using it correctly. But I think he gives us profound direction as his people in his response. He responds and he says, it is also written. The only way to find the truth of Scripture is to compare Scripture with Scripture. Now that's, that's good. It is interesting that Satan quoted Psalm 91. That... Isn't that interesting? Do you find that interesting? I find it interesting because I think Satan is still quoting Psalm 91, and he's quoting it, well, from the pulpit and from the Christian airwaves and from Christian podcasting and Christian publishing. I know that's a big statement to say. I just think he continues to quote it, and people continue to do messed up things with it. But uh, it's also written that whenever we have any scripture, we have to also look at the rest of scripture before we draw a firm conclusion. I think that's that's I think that's very true. So let's continue to get ready to do their theme here. From the beginning, God has revealed himself as trustworthy. And Jesus helped us understand that by the way he interpreted scripture. Today on Renewing Your Mind, we'll join Dr. Robert Godfrey's series on the Psalms. Previously in this series, Dr. Godfrey explained that the Psalms are divided into five books, each with its own theme. And today we'll look at portions of Book 4, specifically Psalms 91 and 93, Psalms that comfort us in times of crisis. Now my question is, were they meant to comfort us in a time of crisis? Were they providing promises to us in a time of crisis? Were they for us to look at those promises and say, okay, in this crisis, here's the promise. And because this is a promise, this or this or this or this or this or this can't happen, can't can't touch me, can't get near me. Is, th- is that what it's designed to do? I mean, that's a real, that's a real legitimate question. 
Now, I know I say that people lose their minds and they get upset, but you should be willing to consider, well, wait a minute, I wonder if that promise is for me, because if it's not, then claiming it, believing it's going to happen is going to leave you destroyed, devastated, and confused when it doesn't come to pass and the promise doesn't play out the way you've been taught it's supposed to work. Or even worse, you'll say the reason it didn't happen is because you didn't have enough faith. Therefore, you're the reason why you have cancer. You're the reason your child died of cancer. You're you're the reason this sickness came. You're the reason this happened, which then can leave you completely depressed and on the verge of wanting to kill yourself because you think you're responsible. These are serious issues that has profound real-life implications. So let's see what they do with Psalm 91. Well, we took a bit of a look at book three of the Psalter and saw the crisis there, uh, crisis really central to the lives of God's people, central to the Psalter. And part of what we want to look at now is having presented the crisis, how do we move out of the crisis? We've seen that a little bit in some of the Psalms of book three itself. But now we come to book four. See how well I'm handling numbers. Uh, Book four comes after book three. And uh, uh, book four is similarly a brief book, a relatively brief book, 17 Psalms, Psalm 90 through Psalm 106. And it is a book that begins to help the people of God find relief from the crisis, find faith out of the day of trouble. And so I've labeled book four, The King's Comfort in God's Faithfulness. The King's Comfort in God's Faithfulness. And what tends to characterize book four is that the Psalms are looking back to God the Creator and God the Covenant Establisher with Moses. So since the crisis is a crisis of kingship, The crisis is a crisis of David's family. The people of God are encouraged to look back behind the Davidic times to God the Creator, who obviously is in charge of all things. And when it says the people of God are encouraged to look back, you're talking Israel, right? I just, I have to at least draw this distinction because so many times when we, like so many times at the beginning of a sermon, they'll be like, so Israel this, Israel that, or whomever, they'll, they'll give the historical context, right? And it sounds so good. And, and, and you'll tell people, well, at our church, we don't ignore the historical context. The only problem is sometimes the historical context is established at the beginning of the sermon. And in the rest of the sermon, the original people are kicked out of the text and it all becomes about us. I'm not saying he's getting ready to do that, but I'm always, how can I say, skeptical even when I'm giving, being given the historical context, because so many times that historical context becomes ignored, especially as you get into the sermon, and it's all about you, 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 you. You're like, wait a minute, are these promises to me, 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 or was the promises to them, them, them? And if they were promises to them, did they actually occur, or are they promises to me? And if they're to me, why aren't they occurring? I mean, they're, they're, we, we, there's just basic questions we should have here but also God, the faithful covenant giver, as we see in the time of Moses. So just as in Psalm 77, we saw that a strategy for God's people in the day of trouble is to look back to God's past faithfulness to encourage them for the present. So that's kind of what book four as a whole does. It's looking back to God's past faithfulness. And so it's very telling that book four begins with Psalm 90, which is labeled a prayer of Moses. This is the only psalm connected explicitly to Moses in the title. And so immediately we're being told that we're taken back behind David to the time of Moses. And those wonderful, encouraging words at the beginning of Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And then moving from that assurance and that promise to the theme of creation. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So you are God, you are the creator God, you have been with us in all generations. However great the day of trouble, we can look to you in hope. 
And then carrying on that theme, we could skip over to Psalm 92, and Psalm 92 is entitled, A Song for the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath is the institution that Moses highlights, but Sabbath is an institution that really goes back to creation. It's a critical point. The Sabbath is not something given by Moses. The Sabbath is given by God for man's well-being in creation. And so again, Psalm 92, the only explicit reference to the Sabbath in the Psalter draws our minds back to the creation, but also to Moses. That's a theme developing. And then this book ends with Psalm 105, Psalm 106, which are both historical psalms. Psalm 105 reflecting on the good old days in Israel, particularly focusing on Abraham, Jacob. Very much in Israel. I mean, if you look at the, if the, the, the Psalter, at least in this section, you have Moses, you have Sabbath, you have, you have, you have Israel. I mean, this is Israel heavy focus. I don't think there's any way to get around that. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to remind you of that whenever he finally turns his attention to Psalm 91 is he going to apply those promises to them, or is it immediately going to come to us? What, what's going to happen here? He, he doesn't have a lot of time, so I'm a little concerned here, but let's see what happens. And Joseph, when God was with his people and blessing his people, and then Psalm 106 is a reflection on the not-so-good old days of how Israel in its history also fell into sin. Please know, once again, it's about Israel. It's about Israel. It's about Israel. It's about Israel. That's a, to me, that's a hermeneutical key here, right? If all this is like focusing on, well, there was a crisis with the king. So what should Israel do? Look, look beyond the king, look past the king, go all the way back to Moses, go all the way back to creation, the Sabbath. Now, now remember the good old days of Israel. Now remember the old, the, the bad days when everything went wrong for Israel. Like if, if everything keeps centering around Israel, well then hermeneutically, I would be inclined to maybe believe some of these promises had very much a connection to Israel, Israel, maybe not to me or you. I, I, I think that's reasonable. And what's important about that is that while book four gives a lot of comfort, at the end of book four, we see we're still in the same place where we started. There's still a crisis. It's not really resolved. We've been helped, but we haven't been entirely healed. And so book four takes us forward, but doesn't get us all the way there. Uh, we have to wait for book five for that. One of the ways this is marked for us is in book three, the great crisis of the king, there's only one Psalm of David. David's almost absent. In book four, there are two Psalms of David. So things are a little brighter. David's making a comeback. Uh, and uh, then in book five, we'll see a number of Psalms of David. So there are all sorts of pointers, I think, that help us see what's going on here. But I want us to give a little thought to Psalm 91. If both Psalm 90 and Psalm 92 connect us with creation and with Moses, we might expect something similar to be found in Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is one of the relatively familiar psalms in the Psalter for a lot of people today. It's, it's full of wonderful promises. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. There, there are wonderful promises in this psalm, wonderful reassurances. Yet there's no explicit statement about Moses here. But again, if we know the book of Deuteronomy well, um, we will recognize there are all sorts of echoes of Deuteronomy 32 and 33 here. Oh, keep that in mind, all right? So there are all kinds of promises. That's where the controversy begins because people te read these, pre either pastors preach these promises as if they belong to us or people are in their little devotional time. Well, well, like this is my promise. This is the promise. And I'm like, oh man, please note, if, if there's an echo, if Moses is around, is, is already in this section, Israel's clearly focused. The focus in this section is Israel. And then in Psalm 92, it's echoing parts of Deuteronomy. Oh, <laughs> well. Is these promises specifically for Israel as they go into the promised land? Is that, is that, is that a crazy assumption? Or is there some textual hermeneutical clues here 
pointing us in that direction. In this song, this is kind of a meditation. It's kind of maybe almost a fugue on Deuteronomy 32 and 33. And I would challenge you, read Deuteronomy 32 and 33. I would challenge you to do this. Read Deuteronomy 32 and 33. Have Psalm 91 open and just see where you see like the similarity, connection, Deuteronomy 30, 32 and 33 and Psalm 91. And just read read them. Have, have, have one, maybe get two Bibles, one open to Psalm 91, the other one to Deuteronomy and just just draw and just on paper write out. Deuteronomy 32, this verse, Psalm 91, this verse, Deuteronomy, this verse, this verse, and draw, and see the correlation yourself. That's why you don't have to listen to some pastor. See it for yourself. Part of the reason that's important is that Deuteronomy 31 says God is going to come in judgment on his people for their faithlessness. And then Deuteronomy 32 and 33 say, but after that he'll return and there'll be blessing, and there'll be restoration and deliverance for his people. So, Psalm... Now, that's interesting. When when the restoration and the deliverance for the people, is that referring to after they go to captivity to, say, the Babylonians? Or is that a reference to some future restoration, like maybe millennial kingdom? And if it's millennial kingdom, then is Psalm 91... Promises for the millennial kingdom for Israel. I, I'm just I'm just throwing that out there, right? So if if Deuteronomy gives a chapter about judgment, and then well, God's going to return, and there's going to be restoration. Well, wait a minute, is that is that saying Israel's going to go into captivity? But wait, not all of Israel, because the northern kingdom doesn't come back from Assyria. So is is that how do we interpret those promises in Deuteronomy? That, that could be very, 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 very important. Psalm 91, in a sense, is a great meditation on that promise that after exile, after suffering, after loss, will come days of blessing. And when are those days of blessing? When were those days of blessing for Israel? Because when they came back out of exile, if you say, well, there were some days of blessing, it obviously didn't last very long, right? Because as soon as you open up the New Testament, where is Israel? under the foot of Rome. And then what happened 70 AD? They're wiped off the face of the earth. So where are those days of blessing? Are are you saying Israel is just done with? Or are those days of blessing ultimately going to happen in the millennial kingdom? If they're going to happen in the millennial kingdom, and those promises are to be understood for Israel in the millennial kingdom, then Psalm 91, could it not be argued? And I'm just throwing this out there, that it would fit there because clearly it doesn't fit for us today because clearly these promises aren't happening the way, well, it's often preached. Psalm 91 then is a celebration of that blessing with extraordinary promises. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Here we have the introductory theme of Psalm 91, if you will. God is near. God is near. Snare of the fowler. What what, what do you think the snare of the fowler? Is that just, is that meaning that he's going to deliver you from all your enemies? From the noisome, noisome pestilence. Is that he's going to deliver you from all sickness? He shall cover thee with the feathers, and under his wings shall thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shall not be afraid for the terror by night, nor the arrows that flieth by day? Does this mean that you never have to worry about any pain, any hurt, anything? Now, if, I mean, like, how do you understand this? Now, what we tend to do is we, we say, we, in some ways, we take the promise literal, but then we kind of minimize it and say, well, it just means that God will protect us, but it doesn't mean that I won't get sick. It doesn't mean that I won't die. It doesn't mean that I won't get murdered. It doesn't mean someone won't break into my house. It doesn't mean I shouldn't own a gun to kill someone who tries to hurt me. But, 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 but these are promises. So like, how, how literal do you take the promise literal or do you so wash it down that it doesn't really mean anything? Like, how much do you trust? this? How much do you really trust this? Or is it for Israel? And it has a specific connotation, a specific time frame. 
He's near to his people as a refuge. He's near to his people as a, a great bird who's, who's sheltering us under his wings that will, will protect us. See, now he just went to us, us. He's, he's, he's given the, uh, the whole section of book four of Psalms. He's made it very clear that Moses is mentioned, the Sabbath is mentioned, Israel is mentioned. He's made, he's made it very clear that everything around this points to Israel. And then all of a sudden he gets to Psalm 91 and it's us, us, us. We just got shoved into the text. But okay, well then how do the promises work? Hey, you don't need to worry about anything. You don't need health insurance. You don't need to lock your door. You don't need a gun. You don't need anything. You're under the wings of God. Nothing can get to you. You are protected. No sickness, no threat, no violence. Well, then if that's what it means, then why do we live that way? And those who try to live that way, well, they end up, guess what? It doesn't work. And therefore, we don't need to fear. That's where the psalm goes next. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Now, now sometimes it's a little hard to figure out exactly how we apply these psalms to ourselves. Does this mean if you're a good Christian, you'll never get sick? Does this mean if you're a good Christian and go off to war, there's no chance that you will be wounded? Well, that sort of answers itself, doesn't it? No. Oh, see, now here's what we, so the promise is for you. See, this is, oh man, this stuff drives me crazy. The promise is for you. It's just hard to know how to apply it. Just know it doesn't mean that, well, you won't get hurt, you won't get sick, or you won't die during war. I know it seems to say that, but it doesn't actually mean that. But, but the promise is for you. So the promise is for you. Just don't take it that literal. You got to water that, you got to water that thing down. So that really the promise is just kind of a, what is it? Is it like a inspirational poster, right? You've seen those inspirational posters. You can do it. You can accomplish anything. You set your mind. But we all know that, okay, we really can't do anything. It's just kind of, is this just kind of like a pep talk? Just like a little bit of hyperbole to get you through a rough day? Or because on one hand we want to say it's literal promises, but on the other hand we say, but, 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 but don't think it means what it seems to say because it doesn't mean that. Well, then what does it mean? It, to me, it makes far more sense to go everything around this is Moses, Israel, 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 Israel. Okay, if if this echoes Deuteronomy thirty two and thirty three. And 31 is judgment. 32 and 33 is now Christ, or there's going to be a return. There's going to be blessing. Well, then when is that return? And so this is either promises specifically when they came out, I guess, came out of captivity from Judah, or, or is this the millennial kingdom? And if it's the millennial kingdom, some of these promises may make far more sense. That's not, not the promise here, but it's a vision of God's faithfulness to his people, his protection of his people and his willingness to go with his people. Now, just, now listen to that. Okay, so, so this is just a vision of God's protection of his people, but it doesn't mean that he will actually protect you all the time. See, that's just such Christian doublespeak. Hey, hey, these are promises of God's protection, but doesn't mean he's going to protect you. If you go off to war, you're going to, you could possibly die. You can get sick. This could happen. This could happen. But, 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 but this is a vision of God's protection. So is it a vision of God? If it's a vision of God's protection, that doesn't really mean anything because all of these things can happen to you and will happen to you in some way, shape or form. Then it's a meaningless vision of God's protection, unless it's a real meaning a vision of God's protection for Israel at some specific point, either in the past historically or in the yet future, if you hold to a millennial kingdom. And if you put it in the millennial kingdom, does that not work? I'm not saying it's perfect. Put it this way. No matter what you do with this, it's not perfect, but I would rather do something with it that doesn't leave people going, okay, I'm going to trust God for all of this. And you're like, well, why did my, my child just get murdered? And why did, why does my wife have cancer? And why, why did, why did this? Well, you know, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. You took that, vi- you took that, vi- you took that vision of God's protection way too literal. Um, 
I can't remember if I already mentioned earlier that uh, I went to a funeral of a friend and he'd been a Top Gun pilot. Did I say that already here? And uh, that motto comes back here. The motto his unit had as a Top Gun pilot was, today I am invincible unless the Lord has other plans. And uh, that's kind of the spirit of this psalm. We I'm invincible unless the Lord has other plans. Okay, well, then if I'm invincible, then, then we don't need to do anything, right? I don't need health insurance. I don't need anything. I'm invincible. Or do I have a backup plan when it's no longer God's will? So, so okay, I'm invincible, but I'm going to own a gun in case someone breaks into the house. I'm invincible, but if it's, God, if, if, if it's no longer God's will. In other words, God's like, okay, hey, I'm not protecting you now. You're on your own. Then I got to pull the gun and put three bullets in the person. Like, how, how does this work? You're invincible until it's not God's will. (laughs) So these are promises until they're not promises. They're literal promises until they're not promises. God will protect you until he won't protect you. God will provide for you until he won't provide for you. What? What is that? Are invincible because as, as Paul says in Philippians, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And this is a wonderful promise then of what the Lord has both in the present, but also for the future of his people. If we skip down a little bit, verse 9, because you made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. See, no evil shall befall you. And Christians run around quoting this like it's for us. But then they'll say, hey, but if evil befell you, guess what? You didn't have enough faith. God wasn't your refuge. See, it's your fault. Well, this is like psychological evil is what it is. The, the, The psychological damage this can do to people, I can't even begin to comprehend We have to think this through. He himself has given us hermeneutical clues. We're in book four. Okay. Uh, This is Israel, Moses. Clearly, this is a a much, very much an Israel section, Israel connected. So why wouldn't you then say, okay. And then you even acknowledge that uh, uh, number or Psalm 91 is is connected to Deuteronomy 32 and 33. Well, that's clearly for Israel. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Now those verses should sound a little familiar. When Jesus in the temptation was urged by the evil one, to turn stones into bread because he was hungry, Jesus said, my food is every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then the evil one, being effective at what he does, said, okay, if you're interested in the word of God, let me quote a word of God to you. Let me take you up to the pinnacle of the temple and cast yourself down, show your power, because after all, the word of God says... Psalm 91, verse 12, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's always fascinated me how Jesus responds. You know, there are several responses possible. Jesus could have said, um, you're misinterpreting that psalm. I know what it means, I wrote it, and uh, you're not using it correctly. Or he might have said... uh, You know, that's not the tradition of the rabbis as to how we interpret that psalm. But I think he gives us profound direction as his people in his response. He responds and he says, it is also written. The only way to find the truth of Scripture is to compare Scripture with Scripture. There's no authority to appeal to. There's no pope, there's no prophet who can tell us what the Bible means. You just have to keep studying it. And Jesus points that out. But we can ask, can't we now, what does the psalm mean? If the evil one misused it, how should we interpret it? And I've always been a little bit intrigued by this because um, 
since this isn't being recorded and we can just talk privately amongst ourselves, um, I've always sort of wondered, why are there angels? Have you ever wondered why are there angels? God doesn't really need them, does he? I mean, he can do everything directly. Why would he do anything indirectly? Through angels. On their hands, they will bear you up. Well, why can't God just bear us up? Why do we have to be borne up by angels? Those are good questions. <laughs> but my bigger question is, why are you making Psalm 91 about us? And then you've so watered down the promises to be, well, it's only in effect until God wants it to be in effect. And then it's no longer in effect, which means then I never know if it's in effect because I don't know if it is or isn't. I don't get a text message ahead of time, which means you basically have wiped out these promises for meaning anything. But you've also given me hermeneutical clues to say that this is probably about Israel, but you've not even entertained how that could possibly play out. The the best I can do as an answer, and I think it's a pretty good answer, is to suggest we see everywhere in creation God's love of diversity. God hasn't given us a stingy, mingy, dull little world to live in. But he's given us a world just chock full of things. Beautiful things, beautiful plants, beautiful Murder, rape, disease, plague, drought. Okay, I mean, I mean, you can point to all the beautiful things. I'm just very much painfully aware of all the bad things. Child molestation, child abuse, child neglect, starvation. I mean, I, I could go on and 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 on, but okay. Trees, intriguing animals. One of my favorite verses is from Psalm 104, where it talks about God giving the Leviathan to play in the seas. You know, maybe the Leviathan's good for whale oil, but primarily the Leviathan was created just because there's a playful dimension to God, that he loves the fullness of things. He loves the diversity of things. And apparently that's true in the spiritual realm as well as in the physical realm, because he's made angels, different kinds of angels, to do different things. Not because he needs them. He doesn't need whales, and I hate to tell you, he doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. Um, he, he is in love with what he's made and fellowships with it, enjoys the fellowship of it. And so he's created angels partly just for the joy of it, but partly to be ministering spirits. That means serving spirits. That's what we read in Hebrews 1.14, that angels are ministering, serving spirits to those who will inherit salvation. And so this psalm picks up on that sort of theme to talk about how God appoints angels to help us. Now, does that mean each of us has a guardian angel? Again, us or Israel. You've, and you've already watered down the other, uh, the other promises to basically, well, I mean, they're kind of in effect until they're not in effect. But I guess the angel thing is, is definitively in effect. Uh, that angel is there. I guess the angel is there to minister to you and protect you until the angel isn't. I, like, <laughs> I, oh, man. Joel, well, I'm not sure we can prove that out of the scripture or that it would be useful for us to try to find our guardian angel. That doesn't seem to be at all the point of scripture. Uh, but it is the point of scripture to say God surrounds us not only with protection, but with protectors. And that's part of the blessing here. This is. So God, God protects us and gives us protectors until he doesn't. I mean, like, I don't even. Un- <laughs> so, so like, I have nothing to worry about until I have something to worry about. I am completely pre- like right here. T- so tonight I'm going to leave all my doors open. I'm going to leave a sign out here. Come in, take whatever you want, whatever. I've got nothing to worry about because I got protectors and I've got God. You say, well, no, no, now you're tempting God. Okay, all right. So, so I can't, I can't tempt God. All right, so I won't put a sign up, but I, I, I should not do anything to protect myself because God just got my back, right? Until he doesn't. <laughs> so exactly how does that work? It's what God is saying here. And the protection that God promises us through protectors should never be reduced to something superstitious or frivolous. And that's what the devil tried to do with this promise. He tried to make it frivolous. Just go jump off a cliff and see if the angels will bear you up. 
My suspicion is they won't, uh, because that's not what they're appointed for. They're not appointed to be appealed to or used in that way, and that's where the devil was tempting Jesus. As I thought about that some, I was intrigued to realize, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, we find frequent references to the angels in the life of Jesus. The angels are present at his birth. Well, that's in Luke, um, but it still counts. Um, and uh, the angels are present with him after his temptation. Remember, Matthew 4.11 says the angels came to him after the devil departed. So could this be a messianic psalm with the promises only applying to Jesus? I mean, I mean, is that a possibility? Like some of this is for Israel and some of this is for Christ, the Messiah of Israel. Is, is that possible? I mean, he just wants to get us involved, but he, he wants us in it, but he's done everything he can. These are strong, powerful promises, but they're only there if God wants them to be there forever, how long he wants them to be there. So you can never really trust that it's there because we don't know when it's going to be there or not going to be there, but they're there. <laughs> like, I don't even know what that means. Okay. To me, it makes so much sense that, the, that these, these promises are for Israel, for Jesus, and it's for Israel, possibly millennial kingdom can possibly work for some of this. They're with him in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we read in Matthew 26. They're there at the resurrection, Matthew 28. And they will be there at the second coming, Matthew 25 prophesies. So the angels are there with Jesus as his protectors, as his encouragers. You remember that in the garden, Jesus said he could have called forth legions of angels to protect him. He didn't need Peter with his sword. And all of this is part of God's protecting Jesus and Jesus understanding the real meaning of Psalm 91. So if Jesus could have called legion of angels to protect him and he didn't need Peter with his sword, then why do we need a gun or a sword of protection? Can't we call on legions of angels to protect us since this promise is supposed to be about God protecting us and giving us protectors? I mean, if you make it about us... The real meaning of Psalm 91 is not frivolous, but is, is important to recognize God will protect us, and as we trust in his word, will keep us in his word. The angels help Jesus to do God's will, not to avoid it. And that's what is so important to us and so vital to us, it seems to me. And I think that's part of why Hebrews does say in chapter 1 that the angels are ministering spirits to us to help us to be faithful. Then in Hebrews 2, we read, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the angels come to help deliver us from the fear of death and from that lifelong slavery to sin that Jesus came to deliver us from. And, and their function is not then silliness. Their function is to bring the word of God, to impress the word of God, to protect us in God's service. So this is a, this is a beautiful psalm that reminds us of God's presence and God's purpose and God's goodness to us. And so, and I, I've... Oh, it's a beautiful psalm that reminds us of all of these things that are only there, maybe. Maybe they're there, maybe they're not there. You don't know when they're not there. They could be there, could be gone tomorrow, could be here now. But hey, find great comfort in it. <laughs> what does that mean? Like, I, how do Christians think? Like I'd be seeing, I would be seeing it go, wait, whoa, 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 wait. So, so this is, this is a literal promise that God's going to protect me and keep me. And, and that pestilence is no evil's going to get near me. No pestilence is going to get near me. I won't die in war. I'm not, yeah, it's, it's lit. Well, I mean, yeah, it's literal, but it's only literal when God wants it to be literal, but God may not always want it to be literal. So you really can't trust in it. So then what's beautiful about it? <laughs> like what? <laughs> that makes no sense. I always thought it's intriguing that the devil did not quote verse 13 
You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. But Jesus remembered verse 13, and he trampled the serpent underfoot when he refused to be led astray. In the time we have left, I want us to turn to one more psalm. In And there we have it. That's the... That's the way Psalm 91 is handled. I don't even know what that means. Look, you you tell me what that's supposed to mean. I don't know. That gives me no assurance, no comfort, no peace, no anything. To me, it makes far more sense to say the con the, the context there is Israel. It's, it's in book four of the Psalms. Book four of the Psalms refers back to Moses, re- refers to the Sabbath, the end of book four. You have Israel mentioned. Psalm 91 clearly echoes Deuteronomy 32 and 33, okay, which seems to be of the blessings when there's some kind of restoration. Well, if we put that restoration for the millennial kingdom when Israel is ultimately restored and saved, then these promises fit there, or they may have specific promises specifically to the Messiah, but these are not specific promises for us because clearly it doesn't work that way. And to take, on one hand, say these promises are literal or try to water them down to such a degree that they don't mean anything, or say where they're absolutely literal and absolutely in effect, only though when God wants them to be in effect and at any time they can go out. So it's like, okay, well, since nothing bad happened to me today, well, then obviously Psalm 91 was in effect. But tomorrow, if I get kidnapped or murdered or beat or mugged or robbed, well, then clearly it wasn't in effect. So it's it's only in effect when good, I have a good day, but it could be, in a, it could go out of effect on a bad day. Like, what does that even mean? Christian doublespeak, it shows up everywhere. And at some point, we've got to be honest when we hear it and say, ah, that's not making any sense. I'll stop right there. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. The never-ending problem with some of the Psalms and how to interpret their promises. Christians have been struggling with it for 2,000 years. But clearly, 2,000 years shows us that many of these so-called promises that we claim are not happening the way we say they would. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great night. God bless.